If you have a Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, uh, please open it to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be at the last section of that book, and beginning in verse 11. Today we come then to the end of our study through 1 Timothy, and I pray and hope uh, that it has been a good time of reflection in the Word. Uh, I hope that it has been beneficial for your walk in the Lord, and that it is, is proven to be consistent with what we find elsewhere in the Bible, but good for our souls. However, if we, if we look back through 1 Timothy, it, it can seem like this book is kind of taken up with things that wouldn't necessarily personally appeal to us. It's, it's taken up with administrative questions of how the church is to be organized and run. And while that matters to us, it might not be personally fulfilling in the way that many of us would like. But I think if we kind of now at the end of things come back and look at how the book is structured, we can see that Paul means for these administrative things, these sort of unpersonal things to be very, very personal in how we live out our lives. So we could break down the book kind of into two particular sections. The first section is really about orthodoxy. It is about right doctrine, good doctrine. And Paul starts by talking about the good doctrine that needs to be taught, not uh, a misuse of the law, but the right use of the law, the right understanding of Jesus Christ that he has come to save sinners is the main purpose for his being sent to us. Then even thinking about how to rightly organize our thoughts about the outside world, as Paul in chapter 2 urges that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, even for kings, so that the gospel might go forward in the world unhindered by any sort of governmental concerns. Then he says that we are to think rightly about the church and how the church is organized. That is how genders are handled within it, with women not being allowed to preach or teach or to have authority, but how elders are supposed to be organized and, and the duties and the responsibilities that they have. Even how deacons are to have the same sort of qualifications so that they all together, the deacons and the elders, might be pillars and buttresses of the truth and allow the church to stand as pillars and buttresses of the truth. And then in chapter 4, we get the personal application of it. He looks at Timothy and he says, Timothy, you need to pursue godliness. You can't be taken up with all of these extra things. And you certainly can't be led astray by all these bad teachings. You are to preach and to teach these things. You are to put these things before the brothers. You are to work on your godliness. The second section is much the same, beginning in chapter 5. We begin to talk not so much about orthodoxy, but orthopraxy, the right practice. And specifically, Paul has in mind here money. You'll notice that even as Doug said a couple of weeks ago, we, we don't talk about money all that much around here. For the past four weeks, we've done nothing but talk about money. It's come up in every single section. And the reason why is because Paul, when he talks about orthopraxy, he wants to know how we should arrange ourselves, how we should handle this. The most important thing for him in these particular verses is how we handle money. And so in chapter five, he talks about how are we to handle widows? How are we both to support them without leading them into more sin? How are we supposed to honor elders? How are we supposed to work as servants under masters in employment situations? How are we to handle false desires and wrong desires for money and things like that? And just like the orthodoxy section, the orthopraxy section ends with an absolute appeal to Timothy to pursue godliness to work hard at these things. The end result is that all these administrative things, the reasons why the, the church is organized the way it does, the reason why it preaches what it does, the reason why it gives the way it does, comes down not simply to talking to a church, but to talking to individuals. Timothy, this is not the responsibility of the church. 
only. It's not the responsibility of people out there. It is your responsibility. Churches are only going to be as healthy as the members therein. So all of this administrative stuff, all this stop, the talk about what are the qualifications for elders and things like that, these ought to matter to you because all of these are here to help you grow in the Lord. All of them are here to help you pursue godliness. Because of that, as we come today to the passage, we're kind of wrapping up on this emphasis, specifically on riches, but we're going to kind of broaden that out to a number of different topics. Here Paul is going to use words, and I think that we are right to consider our lives a bit of a journey. That as we go from one place to another, we are being changed from one glory to the next. This is biblical language that's being used. Paul is going to use many sorts of words in here that are going to reference a a movement, a direction, a change in direction. Flee this, pursue this. People have gone off course. They've gone astray. So he is picturing here our lives as a journey. This is not unfamiliar territory for Christians. After all, we are thought of not just in scripture, but outside of scripture is lives being a journey, right? We have one of the greatest books of all time that have been written about this, specifically the allegory of Pilgrim's Progress, but we have biblical examples too. Our lives are kind of pictured as wilderness wanderings as we are awaiting entrance into the promised land. We are sojourners in a foreign world. Matthew even has Jesus saying something like this, enter by the narrow gate, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. The idea being your life is is a journey. And as you walk in that journey, there are right ways to walk and there are wrong ways to walk. So let us talk today about the nature of how we head where we ought to be headed. What is the direction? What is the the destination? And what are the detours that we might find along the way? So if you will, read with me, beginning in verse 11 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of our God. As we consider our lives as a journey, let us first be aware of our direction. Let's be aware of our 
direction. You are to flee certain things and you are to pursue certain things. The ESV blunts this a little bit. They, they separate the two verbs and they don't place them next to one another. They even put them in separate sentences, which isn't terribly helpful. He's saying, these things flee, pursue these things. Immediately, they're back to back. It, it's meant to sort of give you a shock that you are not to go after these things, but you are to go after these other things. And let us not be coy about this sort of fleeing either. That Paul is not saying to flee these things because they're small or because they're simple. Listen to the types of difficulties that come to people who do not flee these things. If we back up in chapter 6 up to verse 9. Those who desire to be rich, these are the things that Timothy is to flee, fall into temptation, into a snare, into senseless and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So let's, let's go over the difficulties that are involved in this, the, the sort of dangers that are here. There are pangs. There's a piercing. You have ruin and destruction, harmful desires, snares. None of these are pleasant images. Paul says these are, are horrible things and you are to run from them. You're not to just kind of run away at an angle from them. You're not to play around with them and be close to them. You are to flee them. It's like there is a bear in front of you. You say, okay, I see the bear. I know that that bear is going to come after me, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run at like a 20-degree angle, and maybe he won't figure it out. If I run straight at him, he's just going to kill me. But if I run just a little bit to the side, I, I can probably get away. No, you're, you're eaten by a bear, okay? 45 degrees, you're eaten by a bear, 110 degrees, you're eaten by a bear. The chance you have to get away is to turn completely the opposite direction. Not 50 degrees, not 90 degrees, not 135, but 100. So for those of you who don't know math, 180 degrees is the opposite way. You turn 360, you're back in the bear, okay? You're just, you're, you're just spinning bear food is all you are. So 180 degrees, you're going back the other way. Turn from the bear and run. That's the hope you have. You have no other hope. And we all know this. We all know this. When you are faced with a bear, you don't run at a slight angle toward him or even a slight angle away from him. You see him, you turn around, and you run, hopefully faster than the person you're with. The question is, why don't we do this with our sin? We do this with bears because we know bears are big, they're nasty, they're ugly, and they're dangerous. And most of us, hopefully, are not silly enough to think that we can handle a grown bear on its own. We don't do this with sin because we don't see sin as big, nasty, ugly, and dangerous. The world presents sin to us in such a way that it appears cozy and comfortable. It appears reasonable and sensible to us. We, we think that it's alluring and pretty. We strive after riches, power, security, comfort. We strive after the things that the world hands to us because we think that they're good and they're fine. And they are fine on their own, but they are not good as idols. And as sin, they can easily destroy us just like a bear. James 4.4 4 says this, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Listen, you, you can't play along with the world's games and think that you're going to be okay. 
You, you can't toy with the world and toy with friendship in the world and think that you're going to be okay. You can't play along with these things and think that you're not going to fall into a snare and be plunged into ruin and destruction and think you're going to be okay. Scripture warns you, you see it, you flee from it. Go, know the direction that you're headed in, friends. And please, don't be deceived by what I'm saying. What I'm not saying is that this sort of fleeing from sin is only for those who are involved in sin that's really bad for us. So, so we, we know that people who are thieves, they steal things, so that's bad, so you really got to stop doing that. And, and dealing drugs and dealing drugs, those are bad, and we've really got to stop doing that. And don't even talk to me about murderers. Those are bad things. We, we can't do that. But it doesn't really count for you because you're pretty good. You're, you're nice, you pay your taxes sometimes, and, and you do everything that you can do to be a good, upstanding citizen of the United States. Friend, you are in as much danger as any of those other people in being involved in that sin continuously. As a matter of fact, you're probably in more danger because these things are alluring. You're probably in more danger because we generally don't think of those hidden idols as being nearly as bad for us as the obvious and, and evident idols of other people. I'm telling you, you are in grave danger if you are not inspecting your life to see where sin might be. If you were content thinking that you were just a good person, sin is likely eating you up and you don't even know it. We all need to flee from our sin. We all need to be inspecting ourselves. The world is not going to make sin look like sin. It's not going to make the the sin look ugly. When Eve looked at the fruit, she went through it. It looks nice. It seems reasonable. It seems good. It'll be helpful. And it almost never is. It leads to death. We do this because bears are not always ugly and nasty creatures. You watch the specials, and they're cute. They're comedic. They're doofish. They, they just do doofishy things. They, they, they grab fish out of a river. It's kind of cute. They scratch their back on trees. It's kind of fun. We stuff them with fluff and we like, let them like honey and we call them poo and we think that it's all cute and curious. But that's not how it is in the real world. That's not how it is when you meet one in person. And the world can paint sin as nice and fluffy as it wants to and it can make it seem like it's harmless and it's good and it's fun. But in the end, it will always lead to ruin for you. We need to flee from our sin, not just from the obvious ones, but from the less obvious ones. Not just from cheating and doing drugs and lying and any sort of sexual deviation that you might think of, but greed, people who revile, swindlers, people with enmity in their life, strife, people who cause strife, who have strife continuously among them, people who have fits of anger, people who make rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy. We often overlook these things as just sort of character flaws. These are not just character flaws according to scripture. They are listed side by side with what we might call more serious sins because they are devastating to us. We have been called by Christ out of these things. So every part of our lives must change. Our relationships, our desires, the way we parent, the way we are employed, the way we do work, the way we come in here and sing, every single part of it has to be changed. We must flee from sin and follow better things. Paul is likely warning Timothy to flee two things specifically. Poor theology that departs from what has been taught. This is connected to the previous verses back up in verses two and three. And the desires of riches. So friend, 
as Paul has done this work for Timothy to identify these two places, where are the places where you are prone to sin? And if you can't answer that question, I, I plead with you this week, do some introspection. Pray to God to show you that because you don't know what to flee from if you don't know what to flee from. You don't know what to flee from if you don't know what sin is. If you've never seen a bear, you won't know to flee from it, although the big claws kind of give it away. But nevertheless, you, you need to be able to identify these things. Be very aware of the direction you are headed in and flee from your sins. So be aware of your direction, but secondly, be aware of your destination. You're not just to flee as though it's only a negative command, go away from this, but Paul is going to point you to where you should be running. And he lists many good things to pursue. He says righteousness, godliness, love, faith, steadfastness, gentleness. All of these things are often characteristics that we find in people who pursue God. And what we do typically and what a preacher would do and what I was prone to do is to sit here and to sort of define what these things are and say, well, godliness, as I did back in chapter four, we said, well, these are the characteristics of God that are applicable to us. So we can't be immortal the way God is immortal. We can't dwell in inapproachable light the way God can. We are not sovereign over the world the way God is, but we can love just as God loves. So those are ways in which we can be godly, these, these characteristics of God that can be communicated to us, those characteristics of God that we share with him. But that is not the only way we can understand these things. And I would guess that it's probably not even the best way that we can understand these things. We'll come back to that. Because Timothy is instructed also to fight the good fight of the faith. That is that he is to hold to what is true, hold to what he has been taught, hold to the things that he has always believed in. And you get the impression here that Paul realizes that when you flee from things, when you have to run from things and pursue other things, that it's not going to be easy. As Jesus has already said, as we have already read, there is a way that leads to life. The road is narrow and it's hard. It is filled with difficulties. There are all kinds of things in this life that are going to scream at you to give up the fight of the faith to indulge yourself in sin. And Paul is looking at Timothy and saying, no, you cannot do this. Although temptations are all around you, although sin encompasses you, you must fight to keep the faith. And lastly, he says, I charge you. Later on, he says, I charge you. But here he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. That is, grab it and do not let it go. We sing quite often that beautiful, beautiful song, He Will Hold Me Fast. It's a really helpful song. It's a really great truth that you are going to fail in this life, but if Jesus has called you, he will not let you go. But let us not, let us not overemphasize the sovereignty of God in holding us and keeping us and undermine the biblical pressing upon us to hold on to Christ. Friend, you have to hold on to Christ. While that is a great song, speaking of like holding fast to something, those words are almost always applied not to Jesus with us, but to us and Jesus in Scripture. You are to hold on to him. You are to cling on to him. As he has drawn you near, you are to hug him and strengthen, be strengthened by the fact that you are gripping on to him and no one will let you go. Paul says you are to take hold of the eternal life, that eternal life to which you were called. God is indeed holding you fast. He indeed has called you into it. This is a picture of election. Jesus looked from time immortal and looked down the passage of time and said, Timothy, you are mine. I am calling you out of the world and into my kingdom. You are going to be my servant. 
And even as he has done this, Timothy, you are to hold on to him. Notice the beauty of sovereignty and responsibility here just placed together side by side. He has called you out for this eternal life. But then there comes, frankly, a confusing little bit. He says, you were called to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, we make confessions all the time. The way in which we'd probably most sort of boil down or shrink our confession to one statement is precisely what my wife read even earlier today. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? So it's a very simple thing. If you trust and believe in what you're saying and you speak and you confess that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, but that Jesus is the Messiah, the King, the sovereign over all the world. If you understand what you're saying when you say that and you say it and believe it, Paul says you will be saved. We confess that. We can expand this. We could go to the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I really prefer the older version, the quick and the dead. I love the idea of living people being quick and dead people being slow. For some reason, that just cracks me up. The living and the dead, okay? We confess these things. These are the confessions that we make. These are the normal confessions that we make. When we say you confess, what are you confessing? You're confessing Jesus is Lord. Now, we can take all of the Apostles' Creed and we can boil it down into simply saying Jesus is Lord. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Grammatically, he's not saying that you made the good confession of Jesus as Lord. He's saying that you made a confession of eternal life. That's what he's saying. You Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which, eternal life, about which you made the good confession. What in the world is that supposed to mean? How does somebody confess eternal life? Does he just walk into the room and yell out, eternal life? Like that's a confession of some sorts, but is that what Paul means? Eternal life that we will have in the future is the absence of death. It is only life. It is life that goes on forever. And not only is it the absence of death, it is the absence of everything that leads to death. It's the absence of pain, of frustration, of calamity. It's the, the absence of anything that comes from the original sin and all of the fallenness of the world. It is what we live. It is what we live in. So is that what we're confessing? That we get that? Not quite. We're still confessing Jesus. There is no difference between confessing eternal life here and confessing Jesus. You are confessing Jesus here. And what he's talking about is confessing Jesus. We just got done singing, all I have is Christ. It's not as though you have eternal life outside of Christ. It's not as though you have Christ and then Christ just sort of gives you eternal life. It doesn't work like that. They're not two separate things. To confess eternal life, to have eternal life, is to have nothing less than Christ. Let's walk through piece by piece a couple of verses of John which we're going to come back to in a couple of weeks as we've left there. We're now going to be going back to John. A couple of verses in John that kind of make this clear. Jesus makes it clear that he is life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says, I am life. This is an extension of what he said earlier, that being in 14.6, in 5.26, where he says, the Father has life in himself, and he has given to the Son to have life in himself. And so he has life. Jesus Christ is life. 
And what's more, in John 10.10, 10, he tells us that not only is he life, but he has come to give you that life as well. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, not a piece of it, to have it fully given to them, eternal, immaculate life forever. So if Jesus is life and he has come to give us life, we would rightly assume that we only get life by being in Jesus. And lo and behold, in John 17, Jesus says this in his high priestly prayer, saying, not about his disciples only, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our eternal life is nothing less than Jesus Christ. He isn't just a liberator who lets captives free so that they can run willy-nilly over the countryside. He isn't just a traffic cop who points you in a good direction. He isn't just a president or a king that allows you to think that you can interact socially without unjust harm coming to you, promoting a peaceful society. He's not just a shepherd who gives you good food and good water. He's not just a physician who can heal all the things that have gone wrong with you. He isn't just a strong tower where you can be safe from the storm. He isn't just any of these. He is all of those. But he is much, much more than that. He is the very life that we get, the very life that we embody, the very eternal life that we confess. So in Galatians 2.20, this same Paul himself can say this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a participation with Christ that is not just metaphor. It is real. The life that you live, you now live in Christ. All I have is Christ. We've already sung, Jesus is my life. When we confess eternal life, when Timothy has confessed eternal life, that that confession is nothing less than the confession of Jesus Christ. And we'll see why Paul utters it that way because Paul also solemnly charges Timothy in front of the God who gives life you're confessing eternal life. Well, guess what? There is one being who can give you that life. It is God the Father. He gives life to all things, beneficently, graciously, giving life to all people, but specifically to the people who trust in his Son. He gives eternal life to them. And he says, in front of Jesus, who made the good confession before Pilate. And that is strange. Out of all the things to say about Jesus, out of all of them, and there are Billions of things to say about Jesus. The fact that he made a good confession in front of Pilate seems real low on the list. Real low. You can flip over one book to 2 Timothy and hear again how Jesus is talked about there in much, much more ringing terms, much more words filled with glory and honor and power. In 2 Timothy 4, he's going to charge him again in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. And this is what, what Paul says. I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living, the quick, and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. He is going to appear in glory. He is going to appear with his kingdom, and he is going to judge the living. Those are high, lofty terms. It's not just a dude who made a confession in front of somebody else. So why does Paul use that kind of language here? He could use any sort of language. He could talk about his his impeccability, his sinlessness. He could have 
said many, many, many things, but he focuses here on this confession. Why? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the confession before Pilate was a very simple, you have said so. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus very succinctly in those three gospels simply says, well, you have said so. John lengthens the interaction between the two quite a bit. When asked that same question in John, Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So Pilate said to him, so you're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. There is the answer that is succinctly stated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now he doesn't back off. He says very clearly, I am a king. My kingdom isn't of this world. What you expect, Pilate, is for me to act like a king in the world. You expect for me to fight and to claw for every square inch of this land because you think that that's the way that kingdoms are won and lost. He says, that's not how my kingdom works. There is kingdoms in the world, but then there is my kingdom, which is not from the world. My kingdom is heaven. Satan might own all of this, but he will not for long. Now, the interesting bit about this is that he stands in front of Pilate, and Pilate is the person above everybody else around. Pilate is the person who can let him go. He is the person who can grant him his freedom. All he needs to do is say the right words. All he needs to do is utter the right thing. Just, he could even tell the truth. You realize that. All he needs to do is tell the truth. Not even say that he's not a king. He can say, listen, I, I know that they're bringing charges. I, I'm not guilty. Pilate was more than willing to let him go. He, he, can, he can play the game. He can utter words in such a way and, and form them in such a way that he could get off scot-free. All he needs to do is give him the right answer and he gets freedom. It's the same thing that happened all the way through the Gospels. He's tempted by Satan in the beginning. Do you want all the kingdoms of the world? Just kneel down, bow down to me, and you can get the object of what you've come for. Satan's probably not lying there. You worship me, and you can have all of the kingdoms. I'll just hand them over to you. But of course, if you worship Satan, you won't really truly get those kingdoms. You can have everything that your father sent you for, but you get it easier. I'm offering you the easy way. Peter does the same thing to him in the book of Matthew in chapter 16. He says, I'm going to go, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be killed. And what does Peter say? He says, that ain't never going to happen. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You're doing the exact same thing. You want me to be king. You want me to be Messiah, but you won't let me do the thing that I need to do to get there. And Pilate is doing the exact same thing to him. All you need to do is tell me the right words, and I'll get you out. Jesus says, no thanks. I'll take what my father desires, and I'll take it according to how he desires it. That is why it's a good confession. Jesus, like Timothy, stands before God the Father knowing, knowing that it is through God the Father's plan that he will get life. God is the one who can give him life. What Paul is saying here is Jesus is both our destination and he is our goal. He is the way we get there. He is our destination. He is our eternal life. As we already went through and talked about, he is the very nature of the life that we are going to get. Do you really want to know what it means to be righteous, godly? faithful, loving, steadfast, gentle, to fight the good fight, to grab hold of eternal life and to flee sin? You look at Jesus. I can give you definitions for it. Read. 
Read. Watch how he lives his life. Even that good confession, you realize all of those characteristics are found in those simple words. You have said so. He is godly. He is not denying it. He is telling the truth. He is upholding his Father's righteousness in all things, knowing that God the Father has a good plan for him. He has prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. The cup has not been taken from him. He will drink it down to the dregs because he knows that his Father is good. He will stand before a judge who judges rightly. He knows that the resurrection is his. He is faithful to God. He is loving to us. He is steadfast. He does not waver. He is gentle. He does not berate us in all things. He is the example of everything we need. He is what we strive for, and he also shows to us how to strive for it. He is our example, and he is our goal. We can therefore stand assured before him. Listen, our hope will never be in vain. This isn't a hope without conviction or truth. When we talk about hope, sometimes we talk about hope with our fingers crossed. That is not the hope of the gospel. When Paul talks about the hope, when Paul talks about the assurance of things coming, he means that we hope for something that is sure. We just don't have it yet. It's not the way we typically use hope. So in verses 14, he talks about keeping the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Keeping the commandment means taking hold of eternal life, doing the things that I've called you, fleeing this, pursue this, take hold of eternal life. Keep those things from reproach until the appearing of our Lord. There will be a day when Jesus will show up and you will be as he is for you will see him as he is. You will be changed in a minute, in a second, in the blink of an eye. All of the difficulties of this world will fall away. He says, until that day comes though, Timothy, you fight, you fight, and you fight some more. And what's more, it is sure to happen. For the one who is going to make it happen is God himself. At the proper time, God will let it happen. He is the blessed one. He is eternally happy and gracious to work in his son. He is sovereign. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. He rules over all things. Listen, there is no difference between God saying, I want something to happen and that thing actually happening. My kids say, I want stuff all the time. It almost never happens for them. It doesn't work that way with God. When God desires something, that something comes to be. There is no difference between him wanting something and it actually occurring because God's will is determinative in the world. He is sovereign over all things. When he says, Jesus Christ, my son, will return in glory, it is assured to happen at the proper time that he has set aside. He is immortal. He has no end. He has no beginning. He is only life, evermore life. He dwells in unapproachable light. You can't see him. He is above and beyond you in every way. You cannot know or fathom what he is like. In truth, in depth, we can know parts of it, but he is also, parts of him are just unimaginable for us. And his glory is far beyond and his power is far beyond. So when God says, there will be a day when I will send my son back to you, Hang on until then, friends. Hang on until then. Because he will. Your destination is coming. It is not forever out there. You can hang on until he comes. Look to Jesus as your example. Look to him as even the very end goal and the destination that you long for. Thirdly, let's be aware of detours. Life is full of problems. Jesus might be our destination. He might be what we want to become and showing us how we become it. 
as we can become holy because of our understanding of Jesus, our following Jesus, the Spirit working in our lives, but life is chock full of problems. Every time we run from one bear, there will be another bear that pops up. Every time we run from sin, we can be assured that Satan is working, that the world is working to make an allure of sin somewhere else. And so we are always going to have full of problems. So we must be aware of our detours. So third friend, be aware of your detours. Verse 17, he's no longer talking to people who desire to be rich or people who are pulled astray by riches and are greedy in their desire for money. He's talking directly to the rich. I don't want any of you to think that you can escape from this. Friend, everyone in here is rich. You realize that you live better than kings did 300 years ago. You can take the wealthiest man 300 years ago and every single person in here lives better than them. They didn't have indoor plumbing. That's important. I don't know if you realize how important it is. You probably take it for granted. That's important. Indoor plumbing. They have soft beds. They have cars to get in front. I don't mean to alarm you. They didn't have barbecue there. Like, there were, there were millenniums of kings that didn't know the deliciousness of barbecue. They lived deficient lives, okay? You live better than any of them did from top to bottom. There's no doubt. You eat better than they did. You are more comfortable than they were. At every turn, you are rich in many, many ways. Now, you might not be rich compared to other people in this country, but friend, we are generally all rich. And so Paul is talking to you as much as he is to anyone. To the rich in this present age, he says, first, don't be haughty. Don't think that your money earns you any favor with God. Don't think that God needs you or frankly, that the church needs you. I'm, I'm grateful for people in this church that give money to the church. I'm grateful for those who tithe, who help the fund, me specifically, and my family, but also just the running of the church. But let me be very clear. God doesn't need any of you. If you think that he needs you, stop giving and see where that goes. It will be ruin for you and the church is going to be fine. God doesn't need you. Don't be haughty. Don't think that because you have money that earns you privilege or honor before God. Money means nothing to him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your penance. Don't be haughty. But also don't set your uncertainty on the hopes of riches. I really love this. The uncertainty of the hope of riches. Riches do have some good for us. God has so organized the world that we can't just say money is nothing. You, money can't buy love and therefore all you need is love. Yeah, again, Beatles, you're wrong. You're just wrong there. You need money in this world. Money is, it's not even a necessary evil as we talked about last week. Money is just a, a good thing at times. You can't get everything you need with money though. And she is a fickle mistress. She will give you much, but she will take just as much away from you. The constant thought of the rich is that money is going to be their solution. Once you have money and you see its usefulness somewhere, you begin to see its usefulness everywhere. And as the old saying goes, once you've only got a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. And so you begin to pound on everything. Yes, money can help a great deal. It can help get you better doctors, and it can help get you better lawyers, and it can help get you more comfortable things, and it can help avoid certain problems. When your house starts to leak, you can have it fixed more easily than those who don't have money. It's not that money isn't important. It's what Paul is saying, it is uncertain. It doesn't hold for everything. It's not good in every way. He says, rather than resting on money which is uncertain to help you in certain cases, you ought to rest on God. Now, God can use money 
to give you aid and succor in many different ways, but he doesn't have to. The fact that he chooses to use money to help you in certain situations doesn't mean that money is important. It just means that God's being gracious by that means. God can take your cancer away by a doctor who makes $500 an hour. And God can take your cancer away by snapping his fingers and saying it's gone. He doesn't need money to do the miracles. He doesn't need money to work in your life. He doesn't need money to provide for you. He doesn't need money to give you life or breath or any good thing. He might use money, but he doesn't need to. He is not like money. He is good in every situation. He is a rock. He is a strong tower. He is the true north, the right and the wise one. He never lies. He never fails. He's never mistaken. And he always answers when he's called. This doesn't mean that money is useless. Paul does turn a rate around and say, rest on God, who richly, Paul is using that term with his tongue stuck in his cheek, he richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You realize what he's, he's talking to the rich. What has he provided the rich to enjoy? He's saying, don't now rich people look at your money and say, oh man, this is nothing but a curse. Paul says, no, no, no. God has given you that to enjoy. Go enjoy your money. Enjoy what God has given you. Every good thing he has given you, and that includes, especially for the rich, which makes them rich, money. Go enjoy your money. But notice how Paul tells them to enjoy your money. Do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. God has given you money and he said, okay, I've made you rich. Now here's what you get to do with all the money that I have given to you. It's not yours. You get to waste it on other people. Have fun and enjoy that. If someone were to write you a check or hand you $1,000 and say, I want to see how much good you can go do for people. Frankly, that would be kind of enjoyable. But we don't treat our money that way. We don't treat God's money that way. And you have to use some money to help you in life. But be generous. Be ready to share. Always ready to write a check. Always ready to help where you can. Paul says in verse 19, By doing so, you will store up treasures for yourselves as a good foundation for the future. Well, what future is he talking about? He's not talking about 2020. If you were to go back in time to 2000, and you were to have $10,000 with you, and you were to give it to your former self, you're going to say, listen, these are the companies that you need to invest in. You're going to tell that person, you're going to tell yourself, back 19 years ago now, it's a long time, 19 years ago, you're going to tell yourself, listen, this is what you want to invest in. You want to invest in Apple, you want to invest in Google, and you want to invest in Amazon, okay? Or are you going to tell yourself, how about Enron, Blockbuster, and Borders? Those are, the, those are what you want to invest in, okay? Now, you're going to look and you're going to listen to yourself and be like, listen, I've heard of this Amazon thing. They're, they're an online bookstore. All they do is sell books. Who wants to go buy a book online and get it shipped to you when you can just drive to the store and buy one yourself? Like, that's way easier. The amazing thing is that Amazon is now what it is. You'd be a fool not to listen to yourself. And in investing that $10,000, you'd have millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars today. What Paul is saying is this. You can do that in that little scenario, that back to the future type of scenario. You can do that because you know what the future holds. 
listen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is nothing but a view into the future. Just as the crucifixion is a view to the last judgment, and it's the last judgment happening 2,000 years ago, the resurrection of Jesus is the justification of sinners in the future happening 2,000 years ago. The resurrection has happened. It is the first fruits of what's coming to you. Paul is saying you can look into the future. You can know that Jesus will give you a good inheritance, that Jesus is true to his word. So give away the money you've got now, which will rot and you can't take with you in order to lay up a good foundation for what's going to happen in the future, which you are assured of. It is no different. It is no different than a future self coming back to you and saying, hey, here's some money. Here's what you need to invest in. I got to go. Jesus has already done that for you. And he's saying, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth that will rust and moths will eat and thieves will steal. Rather, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Riches and money can be good and they are useful on the journey, but they are often detours. They often lead us off of the path, take us away from that which is good and that which is best. So don't be fooled. Set your sights on Christ. And in doing so, keep your focus and your aim on him Doing so, you will guard the deposit entrusted to you. And as individuals in the church, collectively in the church, we will guard the deposit that has been entrusted to us. By doing this, we will avoid irreverent babble and controversy and discontent, but instead focusing on him who came to give us eternal life. These things, as Paul says, have caused many people to go down false paths. They have swerved from the faith on the road. They have fallen over into ditches. Let that not be us. We are the household of God. We are those who, by upholding the truth of Scripture, by the power of the Spirit, maintain and confirm the work of Jesus Christ in the world. We are his body, a depiction of the gospel in the world. And what we are here to do is difficult but simple. We are to help people on that journey, even as they help us. So we pursue Christ. Regardless of what comes our way, no matter the evil or the good, we do not turn to the left or to the right. We do not pursue horses or chariots. We don't pursue fame or fortune, but rather we pursue Christ our God. So let us then together progress toward the goal to which we have been called. Let us be holy because our Lord is holy. And we can get there only through grace. So Paul adds, as we do, let grace be with you. Let us pray. Father, Let us pursue Christ and not these things of the world. Let your spirit convict us of where we do not seek such things. And let that conviction lead to both repentance and action. Even as we strive, Father, we will need your aid and direction. For the way is narrow and the road is hard. Give us grace for the journey. We ask for this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.